0: Well, good morning. Uh, my name is Jamie Borchick. I'm part of the teaching team here, and uh, thanks for being with us this morning. If you got a Bible, you can turn to Matthew chapter one. Matthew chapter one, um, and welcome. Great to have you with us. So, uh, got any? I know it's football season, but do we have any Cubs fans in the house this morning? Any Cubs fans? Any Chicago Cubs fans? Okay, a few. All right. So uh, back in early 2016. I would have identified as a Cubs fan, okay? Now, you, you know, those of you who know me, you know that I grew up in Northeast Ohio. Uh, Cleveland sports runs deep in my veins. Let's go, Tyrone, where you at? Uh, Cleveland sports runs deep in my veins. It's just in me. I can't get rid of it. It's there. Um, but when we moved here uh, several years ago, I adopted the Cubs as my National League team, right? And, and my, my rationale on that, I was thinking, you know, The Cleveland Indians and the Chicago Cubs were at the time the two teams in Major League Baseball with the longest World Series drought in the league. (laughs) So they're both usually pretty bad. (laughs) And so like conflict of interest, never really going to be a thing. Like the odds of them meeting in the World Series are very minimal. Not going to happen. But then the 2016 season happened. And lo and behold, miraculously, somehow the Cubs and the Indians end up playing each other in the World Series. You got to be kidding me. And then, to make things worse, the Cubs beat the Indians in a seven-game heartbreaking series. And I was crushed. My wife hopped on that Cubs bandwagon hard. She became a Cubs fan in October to spite me. Um, but, you know, the Indians lost. And so I was crushed. I was heartbroken. And so I swore off any and all allegiance to the Cubs until the time when the Indians come and finally win a World Series. At which time I will readopt the Cubs as my National League team. Okay. So fast forward. Christmas 2016, and uh, I that year for Christmas, you know, even though I was heartbroken, still still reeling from the loss over the summer, I, I really wanted to rock my Cleveland pride. I was I was uh, excited for the future. Thought the Indians had a bright future. I'm like, man, I need some Cleveland Indians gear so I can I can rep my squad in Chicago and, and stand stand firm in the faith. You know, so I, I asked for a Cleveland Indians shirt for Christmas. And Christmas comes around, and we're opening gifts. And uh, to protect the identity of the, uh, the guilty here, I will not name names. It was not my wife who did this. But to, to protect, yeah, I'm not going to say who it was. But I'm opening gifts that morning. I open up this box. And in this box, I pull out seven shirts. Like four t-shirts and three sweatshirts. And all of them, they're, they're blue and black. And all of them have on it in huge gaudy font, uh, 2016 World Series. And then it's got a huge Cubs logo and a huge Indians logo. And what somebody did is they went on eBay and they bought a, like a lot of leftover merch from the World Series. And they packaged it up and gave it to me as a Christmas gift. Okay, Now, in all fairness, I asked for an Indians shirt for Christmas. And this person got me seven of them. But I just got to say that that was not what I had in mind. Like I didn't even want one shirt to remind me of the Indians losing to the Cubs. Let alone seven of them. Okay. So, I was, I, so what I did, you know, in that moment, what I wanted to do, what I wanted to do is be like, you know, you really shouldn't have. Not like seriously, you shouldn't have. <laughs> but I'm a good Christian. So, so what I did is I, I smiled. I said, thank you. Thank you very much. And I politely took the shirts and put them back in the box. I closed the box up. And I drove to my house and I put it in the closet on a shelf where it sat for about a year before I quietly removed it from the shelf and drove it to Goodwill and dropped it off and said goodbye and good riddance forever. So as Christmas approaches, there are many gifts that I know we are hoping to receive. There are good gifts that we will delight in opening on Christmas morning. But then there are other gifts like that box of shirts That you will get and you will politely put on a shelf for an appropriate amount of time until you take it to goodwill and say goodbye forever. This morning, it marks the second week of our Advent sermon series in Matthew's Genealogy of Jesus. And Advent is a season of celebration and anticipation as we prepare for Christmas. And the way we're doing Advent this year at Park Community Church is we're looking at Jesus' family tree. This genealogy of Jesus in Matthew chapter 1. His family tree consists of three sets or tables of 14 names each. And each week we're looking at one of those tables. So this week we come to the second table. And the second table of this genealogy is all about the kings of Israel and Judah. And Matthew's point in this table is that at Christmas, God gave the gift of a king. God gave the gift of a king. And this morning, the question we're going to answer is what kind of gift is a king? Is a king a gift that we want, or at least that we should want? Or is a king like a box of Chicago Cubs shirts that we should drop off at Goodwill and say goodbye to forever? What kind of gift is a king? So, with that in mind, let's read it Matthew chapter 1. I'm going to read verse 1 and then verses 6 through 11. Matthew writes, The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. The son of David, the son of Abraham. Verse 6. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. And Solomon, the father of Rehoboam. And Rehoboam, the father of Abijah. And Abijah, the father of Asaph. And Asaph, the father of Jehoshaphat. And Jehoshaphat, the father of Joram, and Joram, the father of Uzziah, and Uzziah, the father of Jotham, and Jotham, the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah, and Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh, and Manasseh, the father of Amos, and Amos, the father of Josiah, and Josiah, the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. Father, as we come to your word this morning, we ask that you would speak. Would you take this list of names that many of us skip over or scan through whenever we read the Bible. Would you take this list of names and would you bring it to life for us today. Would we hear the story that you are telling. Would you open our eyes to behold wondrous things in your word. Would you speak now we pray in Jesus name. Amen. <coughs> so what kind of gift is a king? That is the que- to answer that question... We need to understand the story this section of the genealogy is telling us. And that story has three chapters. Chapter one. Desire. Desire. In verse five, Matthew writes of Boaz, the father of Obed, by Ruth. And these names in verse five take us to the period of the judges in the Old Testament narrative. A little over a year ago, you may remember that we preached through the book of Judges here at Park. And the subtitle of our series then was, When God is Not King. All throughout Judges, there is this cycle of rebellion that leads to increasing ruin among the people of God. The final verse of the book sums it up like this. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. So God was supposed to be their king. But the people had rejected God's rule and reign over them. And the result in Israel was chaos. And so in the midst of that chaos, around the time of Ruth and Boaz, the leaders of Israel approached the prophet Samuel and they demanded that he appoint for them a king. The people saw the wreckage that they had made out of their lives and out of their nation and they demanded a king like all the nations around them. They didn't want a king, they didn't want God to be their king, but they did want an earthly king who could lead them and who could rule over them and who would fight for them. And the reference here in verse 5 to Boaz and Ruth reminds us of that desire for a king. God's people desired a king. And so do we. So do we. There is a desire for a king inside of all of us. Now, I know that here in America, we don't do kings and queens, right? We may love to watch royal weddings, and we may binge watch shows like The Crown on Netflix. But the reason that we did that whole 1776 thing back in the day was because we didn't want a king to rule politically over us. We wanted to rule ourselves. And this is the great American experiment with democracy, right? In America, we get to be our own kings and queens, And yet, we still have the same longing that ancient Israel did. We see the ruin and the chaos and the wreckage of the world around us, and we long for a king who will come and who will lead us and who will fight for us and who will make all things right for us once and for all. And it's this universal longing that makes the most popular stories of the world so compelling. I mean, think about the fairy tales and the legends that you heard when you were a kid. Think about the Disney movies you've watched in the course of your life. The details change, but the central story stays the same. A true king returns, slays the dragon, defeats the enemy, kisses the princess, breaks the spell, and rescues us from the dungeon so we can all live happily ever after. Cynics and critics sometimes protest that happy endings like that are escapist and cliche. But Hollywood keeps pumping out happy endings because happy endings sell. And do you know why happy endings sell? Well, it's because deep down, that's what we all long for. We long for Simba to return from exile to slay Scar and restore the Pride Lands. We long for Luke Skywalker to land the direct hit on that heating vent against all odds and blow up the Death Star. We long for Tony Stark to return from outer space to turn Thanos and his whole army into dust. We long for that. And it's not just in our movies. Right now, we're about to enter into an election year. I don't know if you've noticed that, but, but that's coming, y'all. And whatever your politics, whenever an election year comes about all of our collective hopes and fears rise visibly and vocally to the surface. So in 2008, with Barack Obama, Americans voted for hope and change. And in 2016, with Donald Trump, Americans voted to make America, make America great again. And whatever you think of Obama or Trump, in 2020, every one of the contenders will be selling you on, the same, on some version of the same thing. Right, Every presidential candidate sells himself or herself as the savior of the nation. The one who will come and who will make all things right. To win your vote, they're all selling you on, on them being the king or the queen that you have longed for. And so we devour the latest content from our preferred, social, from our preferred news network. And we post our rants to social media. Right? And eventually we flock to the polls to cast our votes because deep down we long for a king or a queen or a ruler who will fulfill all their promises and fix everything and make the world right once and for all. There is a desire for a king inside of every one of us. And it's not just a desire. It's ultimately an inevitability. For the Israelites in the time of Ruth and Boaz, they refused to let God be their king. And they had no king sitting on the national throne. And yet everyone did what was right in his own eyes. The people collectively kicked God off the throne, but then they individually replaced him with themselves. So there was still someone calling the shots. They just became their own king, their own queen. Because you see, there's ultimately no avoiding having a king in your life. We all bow our knees before someone or something as the king of our lives. Every one of us. Forty years ago, long before Kanye West came on the scene, the celebrity conversion that rocked the entertainment industry was that of the great singer-songwriter Bob Dylan. In 1980, Dylan won a Grammy for best rock song for his track, Gotta Serve Somebody. And then at the Grammys that year, he performed that song live on a national television audience. Um, If you get a chance, check that out on YouTube. It is an incredible performance. But this is how the song begins. Dylan sings, you may be an ambassador to England or France. You may like to gamble. You might like to dance. You may be the heavyweight champion of the world. You may be a socialite with a long string of pearls, but you gotta serve somebody. You're gonna have to serve somebody. Yes, indeed, you're gonna have to serve somebody. Well, it may be the devil or it may be the Lord, but you're gonna have to serve somebody. You're gonna have to serve somebody. And the song just goes on and on like that. You may be this. You may be that, but you're gonna have to serve somebody. You're gonna have to serve somebody. And Bob Dylan is right. We all serve somebody. We've all got a king. There's someone or something sitting on the throne calling the shots in every one of our lives. And so the question for every one of us is not about whether or not you will have a king. The question is about who will be your king. Who will be your king? Who is sitting on the throne of your life? And is that king even remotely capable of delivering the happily ever after for which you long? Who's the king in your life? So that's chapter one. Desire. And that brings us to chapter two in our story. Chapter two. Disappointment. Disappointment. In verse six, Matthew introduces David, the king. Israel desired a king, and this verse tells us that God granted that desire. And in what follows from verse 6 to verse 11, we have a list of 14 kings of Israel and Judah that runs from the time of King David, around the year 1000 B.C., until the time of the Babylonian exile in 586 B.C. So these six verses cover a span of around 400 years of Israel's history. And if you want to know more details, you can go to the books of Kings and Chronicles in the Old Testament and read all about it. And there's there's this pattern that runs through that entire 400-year span of history. The first name that Matthew gives here is David, the most well-known of all the kings. David was the greatest king in Israel's history. He's the shepherd boy who slayed Goliath. He's the poet who authored many of the Psalms. And he's the only person described in scripture as being a man after God's own heart. And yet notice the end of verse six. David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. This little addendum is a deliberate reminder by Matthew of what happened later in David's life. When he raped a woman, got her pregnant, And then had her husband murdered to cover the whole thing up. David started well. But then that whole Bathsheba thing happened. The next name in the list is Solomon. And Solomon was the second child born to David and Bathsheba. Solomon, like his father, started well. But he too soon turned to prioritize his own pursuits over God's. And by the end of his life, Solomon had accumulated a massive harem of literally hundreds of women for his own sexual gratification. And in the process, those women had turned his heart away from the Lord to other gods. The Israelite monarchy reached its geographical apex under Solomon. Under Solomon's rule, the kingdom got as big as it was ever going to get. He's just the second king in this list. And yet from this point forward, it's all downhill. Solomon's son Rehoboam takes the throne after him. And Rehoboam is a fool whose folly leads Israel to the brink of a civil war and then results in a rebellion where the, northern kingdom, where the northern half of the kingdom splits off and forms a separate nation altogether. Starting to see the pattern here? Of the 14 kings in this genealogy, three of them, like Solomon and like David, start well but don't finish well. And then the Old Testament says of another seven of these kings, the verdict that the Old Testament renders on them is that they did evil in the eyes of the Lord. So half of these kings did evil, straight up. So if you add that up, that's at least ten of the fourteen here who are all or mostly bad. Of those, of those bad ones, Rehoboam, Joram, and Ahaz, they all build altars and promote the worship of false gods among the people. Joram, murders his own family to protect his power. David and Manasseh both shed innocent blood. Ahaziah and Amos are both assassinated by their own servants because they are so hated by the people. And it may be the most despicable act of all these evils. Ahaz and Manasseh both burn their own sons as an offering to false gods. These are the kings of Israel. In addition to the bad kings that Matthew includes here, if you look at verse 8, right in the middle of this table between Joram and Uzziah, there are three kings and a queen that Matthew deliberately leaves out. For reasons we'll talk about a little later, he's selecting just 14 out of 22 total rulers in Judah's history. And, of the, three, and the three kings and the queen that he excludes here are among the worst of the worst. All of these four people are associated with the notorious King Ahab and Queen Jezebel of the northern kingdom. And all of them do evil in the sight of the Lord. So in total, of all the 22 rulers who sit on the throne of Judah, at the end of the day, only Jehoshaphat, Jotham, Hezekiah, and Josiah consistently do what is right in the eyes of the Lord. And even with those four righteous kings... Scripture is honest about their struggles with pride and with foolishness. So, at best, if you're charitable with these kings, you've got four out of 22 who do what is right. Now, in baseball, that's not getting you into Cooperstown. Probably not even getting you on a minor league team. It's just not very good. And if you look at verse 11, you see where all of it leads. Jeconiah, who's also known as Jehoiachin, at the time of the deportation to Babylon. As Jeconiah sits on the throne and does evil like his fathers before him, Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, marches his army into Jerusalem, destroys the city, and then marches the people out of their home into exile 1,700 miles away in Babylon. That's how the story of the kings ends. So as we look at the names of these kings, what do we learn? Every one of the kings listed here is deeply imperfect. Some are downright awful, but even the best ones fall short in all kinds of ways. And collectively, they each contribute to this pattern To this trajectory of evil, unfaithfulness, suffering, chaos, and ruin that ultimately results in exile and the end of the kingdom altogether. Chapter 2 of our story is about disappointment. Every king disappoints. Every king disappoints. And that shouldn't surprise us. Because the same pattern emerges with every king in our world today too. You know, at some point in our lives, we've all had the experience of having someone that we've looked to for rescue and healing and hope let us down deeply. Politicians, bosses, coaches, our parents, sometimes our pastors, We've all had people in positions of authority who have made promises they didn't keep, who've said one thing and then done another, who were supposed to be good and do good, but who instead were bad and did bad. And even the best ones, even those people who generally do an awesome job, if you look close enough, if you get right up close with them, you can always find some crack in their character, some deficiency in their integrity, some stain somewhere in their record. You know, this is what we have spent the last three months talking about in our Roman series, right? All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And we see that reality in this genealogy, and we see that reality in real life. Every earthly person is imperfect, And so every earthly person will ultimately and inevitably disappoint. And so here's what this chapter of disappointment tells us. Don't put your hope in the kings of this world. Don't put your hope in the kings of this world. They're all imperfect and they'll all inevitably disappoint. Now to be clear, this is not to say that you should never trust people. You should and you need to to go through life. Nor is this to say that some kings aren't better than some others. They are. There are good kings who do a great job. And we ought to rejoice whenever we are under the authority of good leaders. But the point is that if you put your ultimate hope for making the world right in any earthly king, you will, be, you will in the end be disappointed. You're going to get let down. Don't fool yourself into thinking that the next election is going to be different. No candidate, no politician, no political party, no platform, no celebrity, no rich investor, no boss, no king can fix what is most deeply and most fundamentally wrong with the world. No earthly king can bring about happily ever after. They're all going to disappoint. That's chapter two, disappointment. Which brings us to chapter three, Advent, Advent. The word Advent means coming or arrival. And what Matthew is doing in this genealogy is he's pointing us to the advent of the true king. The one king who can bring about the happily ever after for which we long. So way back in the time of David, a thousand years before Matthew's writing. In 2 Samuel 7, God made a promise to David and to his people. God promised that one day there would be a time of everlasting peace and prosperity for his people. And he promised that in that day, a descendant of David's would sit on the throne forever and would rule righteously over his people and bring blessing and happily ever after for them. This was the ultimate campaign promise. And so for generation upon generation, God's people kept looking at the kings, hoping that the next one would be the one that God had promised. And over and over and over again, through these generations, the kings kept disappointing. But then we come to the first line of the first book of the New Testament. And Matthew chapter 1 verse 1 reads, The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David. So Matthew, over 500 years after a Davidic king last sat on the throne of Israel, introduces a man named Jesus who is a descendant of David. And then in verse 6, Matthew reminds us of David, the king. And then he goes on in the verses we just walked through to list out all these other kings of Israel who are in Jesus' family tree. And so it's very clear already that Matthew is highlighting Jesus' royal heritage. But then here's the kicker. Check this out. In verse 17, at the very bottom of this genealogy, Matthew writes... So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations. And from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations. And from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. 14, 14, 14. Now I mentioned earlier that Matthew was deliberately selective in order to achieve that scheme. Historically, there were more than 14 generations in each of those time periods. But Matthew skips some of them, not because Matthew is a dummy and he can't count, but because Matthew is using the number 14 to make a theological point. Track with me on this. Numerals like 1 or 2 or 17 or 54, numerals like that weren't invented until the 5th century A.D., So in the ancient world, in order to represent numbers, letters in the alphabet were assigned numerical values based on their order. So in Hebrew, Aleph is the first letter of the alphabet. And so to represent the number one, you would show Aleph. And then Beit, the second letter, corresponded to the number two. And Gimel to the number three, the third third letter to the number three, and so on and so forth. And every letter had a numeric value. And for that reason... In many ancient cultures, this practice known as gematria developed. And in gematria, what happens is you add up the numeric value of each letter in a word to come up with the total value for that word. And in this passage, Matthew is very clearly and deliberately using this practice of gematria to make a point. The Hebrew name David consists of the letters Dalet, Vav, Dalet. And the numeric value for Dalit is 4. And numeric value for Vav is 6. So if you do the math, you have Dalit 4 plus Vav 6 plus Dalit 4, which adds up to what? 14. 14. The numeric value for David the king is 14. And how many generations does Matthew have here? 14 So what is Matthew trying to say here regarding Jesus? Through the very structure of this genealogy, Matthew is saying king, king, king. Jesus is king. Jesus is king. Jesus is king. That's the point he's making. Matthew links Jesus to David the king. Then he centers the kings of Israel in Jesus' family tree. Then he uses gematria to structurally indicate that Jesus is the king toward whom every other king is pointing. Jesus is king. He is the promised perfect king toward whom every other king points. And he's the king that God promised would sit on the throne of his people forever and would bring about happily ever after once and for all. Jesus is king. Matthew just said it 2,000 years before Kanye ever got to the game. And for the record, I love Kanye's new album, y'all. I am so grateful that Kanye now knows what's up and he can put his musical talents to work to praise Jesus the King. Come on. But Matthew beat him to it by 2,000 years. And all of that brings us back to the question we started with. What kind of gift is this king? Matthew is pointing us toward the advent of King Jesus. But is King Jesus a gift that you want and need? Or is King Jesus something that you just toss out like a box of Cubs shirts? What kind of gift is this king? And in light of this story of desire and disappointment and advent that we've just walked through, I want to finish by giving two answers to that question. (coughs) So what kind of gift is this king? Well, first, he's a gift you want. He's a gift you want. You want the gift of King Jesus. Whether you know it or not right this minute, you want this gift. When you think about the kings in this genealogy, and when you think about the kings in this world, in comparison with King Jesus the contrast could not be more stark. The story is told, and whether or not it really happened historically like this, the sentiment is the important thing in in the story I'm going to tell. But the story is told that after conquering all of Europe and then being defeated and exiled uh, to an island in the Atlantic Ocean, the great conqueror and emperor, Napoleon Bonaparte, toward the end of his life, he called one of his former generals to his side and he asked him, can you tell me who Jesus Christ was? And the general declined to respond, and so Napoleon countered with these words. The great Napoleon said this. He said, Well then, I will tell you. Alexander, Caesar, Charlemagne, and I myself have founded great empires. But upon what did we rest the creations of our, I mean, what did these creations of our genius depend? Upon force. Jesus alone founded his empire upon love. And to this very day, millions, millions would die for him. Jesus had none of the vestiges of power that we typically associate with kings. He had no earthly power or might. No army standing behind him. No political party in his corner. No academic pedigree, no political station, or family connections of which to speak. He grew up poor and spent his adult years homeless, wandering around, relying on the kindness of others to pr- provide for him. From the few accounts we have, it seems that he was not physically attractive. He spent most of his time, in, time in, areas of the country that we, in areas of the world that we would consider today to be flyover country. And he never carried a sword or fought in a battle. And yet, by any account of human history, his is the most influential life ever lived. There's a great line in the final book of the Lord of the Rings trilogy where Tolkien writes, The hands of the king are healing hands, and thus shall the rightful king be known. And I think the reason Jesus' life has been so influential. Is because when you look at King Jesus in contrast with every other ruler in this world, what you see is the healing hands of the true king. In the Gospels, like if you were to continue reading through the rest of the Gospel of Matthew, for example, what you'll see is Jesus bringing that healing power into the lives of real people. He cleanses lepers of their skin disease. He relieves Peter's mother-in-law of a deadly fever. He calms a raging storm. He casts demons out of crazy people. He restores outcasts to community. He makes the lame walk. He makes the blind see. He makes the mute speak. In the gospels, his hands are healing hands. And in the world today... The reason that millions would die for him at this very moment is because his hands are still healing hands. Ask anyone who has followed Jesus for a while and they'll tell you. His hands are still healing hands. When you come under the kingship of Jesus, everything in your life begins to heal. Personally, I put my trust in King Jesus when I was about 20 years old. And I look back today was 14 years ago and I look back today and I see so clearly the way that he has worked healing in my life. He's restored a relationship with one of my brothers who I had deeply wounded and alienated when we were in high school. who's now one of my best friends. He set me free from uh, rampant sexual sin and he's given me a beautiful marriage to a beautiful woman. He's given me a hope that carried me through a really dark season of doubt In despair. He has made me whole because the hands of the King are still healing hands. And even in the areas where the healing is incomplete right now, where you're still in the battle, King Jesus is a King who promises to be with you in that battle. Some of you right now, you're battling depression or a painful loss. Or family drama around the holidays. Or loneliness. Or lust. Or a personal failure of some sort. Or a flagrant injustice that you're facing. Or opposition for your faith. Some of you are in a battle right now. And the beautiful thing about King Jesus is that he's a king who fights for you and who fights with you in that battle. It's like in the movie Black Panther. You know, T'Challa isn't some old guy who commands the forces from afar. Now he steps up and he fights Killmonger on behalf of the people. He goes out with the army at the head of the army in battle. He's on the front lines. And that's the kind of king that Jesus is. He goes with you and he fights for you. And even if it feels like you're losing the battle right now. King Jesus is a king who promises to return and to set all things right in the end. To use another famous line from Tolkien, when the king returns, everything sad will come untrue. The hands of the king are still healing hands. Jesus is a king who loves you so much that he offers you his healing power. And he offers to fight for you and with you and he promises to come back for you and set things right in the end. And more than all of that, he's a king who loves you so much that he already gave his life for you on the cross. That's the kind of king he is. And all of that is to say that even if you're here today and you don't believe in God or you're skeptical about this whole Christianity thing, King Jesus is the kind of king you want there to be. You want him to be king. You want him to be God. You already want this king. So, King Jesus is a gift you want. That's the first answer to the question. Here's the second one it's not just that you want this gift, it's that you need the gift of King Jesus. You need this gift. Here's what I mean. Bob Dylan's saying that you're going to have to serve somebody. And if Jesus really is the true king, then he is that somebody. Think about it. I mean, if the claim that Matthew is making about Jesus in this genealogy and throughout his gospel is true, if Jesus is in fact the true king who lived, died, and rose again and now sits on the throne of heaven and rules now and forever, then you need him. You need him. Because if all that is true, then he's the only one before whom you're going to stand in judgment someday. And he's the only one who will be able to save you and heal you on that day. He's the only one. If he's the true king, he's the only one who can bring about your happily ever after. So if he's the true king, then you need him. You need him. Now I know that for some of you, all the ifs and all of that feel really big. Like you're not sold on the claims of Jesus, and I get that. But you need to know today what's on the line here. If Jesus is king, that fact has major implications for your life right now and for all eternity. And you owe it to yourself to at least look into it, to at least consider it. So let me encourage you, if that's you, Pick up this book and read through the gospel of Matthew. Start there. Keep coming and joining us on Sundays. Keep checking Jesus out here with us at church. And personally, I'd love to take you out for coffee or lunch and I'll buy, I'll treat you. But I'd love to have that conversation. But you owe it to yourself. You need to at least check into this. So King Jesus is the gift we both want and need. Way better than a box of Cubs shirts. Right? Let me land the plane. Here's what all this means for us today. I think for a lot of us, we treat Jesus the way kids treat any old Christmas gift. We open the gift and it's exciting and we're grateful for it and we play with Jesus for a while. But as life goes on, we kind of get bored with him. We get bored with Jesus and so we relegate him to a shelf in our closet. We don't drop him off at goodwill. We don't totally get rid of him. But but we just kind of put him on a shelf in our closet. And we'll take him out sometimes to play with him. But most of the time he kind of sits there on that shelf. He's a part of our life. But just not a very big part of our life. But look. King Jesus doesn't belong on a shelf in your life. He doesn't merit a small place in your life. No, King Jesus merits everything. Everything. So you don't, need to just, you don't just need to fit him into your life somewhere. You actually need to fit your life into his life. King Jesus needs to rule and reign in every area of your life so that he can bring his kingdom to every area of the world. He needs to reign not just over Sunday morning, but he needs to reign over the way you do your job and the way you relate, the way you relate to your boss and to your coworkers and to your clients. He needs to reign over your family and the way you treat your spouse and the way that you raise your kids. He needs to reign over your dating life and who you will or won't go on a date with. He needs to reign over the decisions you make about where you're going to live and over what school you're going to attend. He needs to reign over your hobbies and over the shows you watch on Netflix and over the sites you visit on the internet. He needs to reign over your calendar and over your bank account. He needs to reign over every area of your life. You see, the good king with healing hands, he wants to lead us in all these areas of life and more. And what that requires of us is that we surrender control to him so that he can lead us and he can heal us. And so this morning, where do you need to step down off the throne? And let King Jesus take his rightful place. Where do you need to step down off the throne so that King Jesus can take his rightful place? Jesus is king. Not you, not me, not the president, not your boss, not your friends, not the culture. Jesus is king. And what this season of Advent is all about is celebrating the fact that the king has come even as we anticipate the fact that the king will come again. King Jesus is the gift you want and the gift you need. And so in this Advent season, give your full allegiance to the King. Celebrate Him. Bow your knees before Him. Sing to Him. And channel all your longings for hope and peace and joy and longing for everything, for healing, for all of it. Channel it toward Him and His healing hands as you anticipate the return of the King. Let's pray. Father, we praise you this morning for sending King Jesus into the world. Jesus, we praise you that you are the true king. Praise you for your perfect life. That you are the one king who doesn't disappoint. Who lives up to the hype every time. Praise you that you sit on the throne of heaven. That you rule over all creation. And God, would we, would every one of us, would we today bow our knees before you as the only one worthy of our worship. We praise you that you have come. We pray for the hastening of the day where you come again. Come, Lord Jesus, come. In Jesus' name we pray.